Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. How's it going, Ian? Not too bad. I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to the topic today. Uh, all things are, are decent in Ian land for once. This is not a common occurrence, but I'm happy right now. <laughs> Ian land. I like it. Yeah, it's a combination of like, you know, the Leafs, the NHL and all the craziness in my like, quote unquote life, which is a very liberal use of the world, the word. But uh, there was an election today and I got out and I voted. We'll see what happens, but I'm feeling half decent for once. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I mean, exam season for me. So it's my brain is basically a pile of mush right now studying, but I got out and voted too because we have the Canadian election and I mean, we leave politics off this show because this is a hockey show and nobody wants to hear about politics. I thought we were going to break down the differences in platform between the Conservatives and the NDP. I really thought that's where we were going with this. If you you want politics, go somewhere else. (laughs) Did you just hashtag stick to sports me? I'm very disappointed in you, Rachel. Listen, if I have to watch (laughs) one more damn commercial about the election, I'm going to be mad. Oh, well, then you're in for a treat tonight when you watch Leafs hockey. Yeah, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you actually focus on your exams. Rachel has five exams in the next ten days, so pray for her online, everybody. <laughs> She's gonna be very busy. Yep, yep. But it's all right. We're gonna talk about driving play today, are we not? Yep, I'm excited because this is a topic that I find that we don't always agree on. Not necessarily you and I, but a lot of people online because we have different definitions of what it means to drive play. So I guess. That's where we should start with this entire discussion. What does it mean to drive play? I guess in in 2019, what do we mean when we say that? Well, I think you can sort of check mark some boxes. So uh, odds are if you're getting caved in your own end, you're not a play driver. So if your possession metrics are brutal and you're consistently in your own end, you're not driving play. You're probably doing the opposite of driving play, which means you're getting driven into now, you could be in a situation where you're playing with terrible linemates and you're put up against tough competition, and maybe that's partially to blame for the reason that you're in your own end. But even the best play drivers in the world, when they're in some really rough usage, some really rough context, they still find a way to at least break even under those difficult so circumstances. So Connor McDavid literally played with two dudes, and he was playing with Thomas Yurcho, who was in the AHL in the preseason, and somehow still the best player on the ice. So that's, I think, kind of what you mean there, because no matter who they play with, they could play with a fourth liner, they could play with a guy from the AHL, and you're still going to notice the play going in the right direction. Now, I found this when I was writing about Mitch Marner, because there was this discussion about whether or not he could drive a line, quote-unquote, without Tavares. It was something that Mike Babcock had always praised him for. And diving into it, I realized that I was working with two different definitions of what it meant to drive a line. There were some people who believe that it's based on your ability to carry the puck up the ice, be the primary puck carrier on a line, and basically facilitate everything. And Mitch Marner's a player who's done that consistently throughout his career. But if you look at his shot metrics, he's never consistently outshot the opposition when he's on the ice after you adjust for context. I know last year he did, but he so, also played with John hang Tavares. On, before we so. get too deep into that, let's explain what you mean by transition up the ice. So I feel like we should talk about what kind of stats are involved there that tell us, okay, a player like Mitch Marner gets the puck in transition. He's a good transition player. So 
we're looking at various transition stats and then we'll break down what goes into shot contributions because there's no use in us using those four or five words if nobody knows what they Yeah, mean. the big ones for me in transition are, you know, zone exit, zone entry. Are you consistently getting the puck out of your defensive zone and into the offensive zone with possession? I don't care so much about players who dump it in because then you have to go and get the puck. There are some players who are extremely good at recovering pucks off of dump-ins, but in the aggregate, you want to have the puck on your stick, especially if it's a skilled player. So there are players around the league, Matt Barzell, Patrick Kane, Mitch Marner's one I mentioned, who have excellent transition numbers. Now, their shot metrics are a little bit underwhelming relative to their talent level, but these are guys who consistently have the puck on their sticks and are making plays up the ice. Are you of the opinion that those guys are play drivers, or are they just extremely talented hockey players who find a way to impact goals, but hey, they're not driving play because they're not out shooting the opposition consistently? Where are you when it comes to that discussion? Because I find them to be very interesting players. So I think there's, you could almost make an argument that there's two types, right? There's the players that transport the puck up the ice, which are like the Mitch Marner, William Nylander. So they're taking the puck from their defensive zone, skating it into the neutral zone, and then skating it with control into the offensive zone. So they're getting a possession exit from their zone and a possession entry all in one shot. That tells me that they're a good transition player because they can get the puck from the defensive zone to the offensive zone without much issue. And then there are other players who consistently getting the puck on net. They're living in the offensive zone. I know Sport Logic has a stat that basically has time in zone. So it tells you when this player's on the ice, how much what's the average time they spend in each zone. That'll tell you a lot about a player because if they're spending a ton of time in their defensive zone, not great. Um and then you have the players who can do both like Connor McDavid. So, obviously very clear he can get the puck up the ice. Um, he has no trouble doing that. Same with Nathan McKinnon. Nathan McKinnon comes to mind. Taylor Hall comes to mind. Just guys who, you can see it when you watch them play. They get the puck and they go and they stay on offense when they're and on the And then, not only that, it's once they get into the offensive zone, they shoot the puck or they contribute a shot assist. So it's not just, I'm going to transport the puck and my job is done because now I pass it to the scorer on my line, someone like a Patrick Laine or an Austin Matthews. At this point... The players who are the best at it, so McDavid, Hall, McKinnon, Sidney Crosby, not only are they getting the puck from the defensive zone to the offensive zone, but they're also actually contributing to the scoring chance once the puck's in the offensive zone. So I think there's Interesting, because that's not always one that people will mention when they're talking about driving play. I Personally, that's not part of my definition, but everyone has a different definition when they're talking about driving a line or driving play because... You know, if you're just carrying the puck and not doing anything else, well, then you're not driving the offense on that line. You're just driving the transition. Right. Which does matter, but th- but at the same time, I like to think that there are three phases to the game. You know, there's offense, defense, and transition. I feel like we tend to underrate transition the most often, at least when it comes to mainstream media, quote-unquote 200 hockey men. You ask your, your friend about hockey, they'll probably undervalue the transition component of the game, and I feel like that shows up in a lot of shot metrics. But driving offense and driving defense obviously matters too, so... How much do we weight it when we're evaluating a player? I find that the players that are elite offensively, elite in transition, and struggle a little bit defensively, I find that those players still end up on the positive end of things more than the negative end of things. Yeah, like I would say, as long as you are positive in two of the three categories that you mentioned, you're going to be a net positive for your team, right? So if you're not so good in transition, but you're really good in your defensive zone, and you're really good in your offensive zone, then 
it's going to be a net positive because there's likely someone else on your line who's transporting the puck up the ice. Right. So it's we talked about this with Ryan O'Reilly, I, I believe it was either last week or two weeks ago. when We were talking about what does it mean for someone to, you know, really win a lot of puck battles. And we we're talking about Ryan O'Reilly doesn't transport the puck that well, but he wins every damn puck battle. He's a freak defensively. And that's part of the reason his shot metrics are so favorable. You can say the same thing about a Sean Couturier. Those guys are living in the offensive zone when they're on the ice. And it's not necessarily because of their offensive ability or even their, their transition ability. They're just so good without the puck that it results in their team having it most of the time. Exactly, and it's being in the right spots. It's being mid-ice strong, which means you're coming back through the middle of the ice. You're taking away passing lanes. And a lot of the times, even when guys like O'Reilly and Couturier and Miko Koivu are in their defensive zone, the puck gets kept to the outside. There's not a whole lot of high-danger scoring chances, which would obviously contribute to the expected goals against. And a lot of the time, if there is a puck battle, they win, which means there's no shot attempt to be had. Yeah, Miko Koivu's the king of suppressing shot quality. I mean, you could look at any player in Minnesota. Ryan Suter's another good example of when they're on the ice, they might give up a few shots, but they're giving up zero shots from the dangerous areas. Yeah, they very much protect the middle of the ice. And I think that that's something that hasn't necessarily been quantified to the full extent that some things in the offensive zone have been. But... When we talk about, like, Miko Koivu, for example, he's not that great on offense anymore. He's not that great in transition. But defensively, he's unbelievable, right? Whereas you have And someone... he comes out on top in shot metrics. So is that someone that you would consider a quote-unquote play driver? By your definition, you told me you need to have two of the three, and he only has one of them, but he's so exceptional at it that the pros outweigh the cons. I think they outweigh the cons, but I don't necessarily think he drives the play as opposed to the fact that he just doesn't let the play happen. You know what I mean? Boring hockey. Oh, you know my that. God. He's, the, Whereas he's you, a top six version of Frederick Gauthier. When you think about somebody like <laughs> Sasha Barkov, for example, he put and Mark Stone, even, they are unbelievable, very, like, very good in the defensive end, but then they also transport the puck up the ice. They also are very involved in the shot contribution so those are the types of forwards that you might not be elite in the sense that they're not putting up 100 110 points a year but when you're looking at the things you need to do to win a championship which is the whole point of playing in the NHL they do those things now we could sit here and talk about the McDavid's the McKinnon's the Hall's the Crosby's who are driving play really well but I think it's pretty obvious at which players are, are you know, elite in those categories. I'm always interested on players who maybe fit one definition but not necessarily another because I feel like that leads to a more interesting discussion. We were talking about Miko Koivu on one side of things, you know, a guy who doesn't really move the puck well but is so elite defensively that it, the pros outweigh the cons from a, from a shot differential perspective or a scoring chance differential perspective. The other side of that spectrum is someone like a Phil Kessel or a Cam Fowler. These guys are exceptional at moving the puck, you know, elite. And Phil Kessel has excellent offensive ability, but he doesn't play a lick of defense. And with Cam Fowler, I have to be honest, I'm not really sure what it is. I watch him play, and I see a player who I think is a very solid puck-moving defenseman, you know, someone who should drive play. But the play-driving numbers have never been there throughout Cam Fowler's uh, career. The play-driving numbers have never really been there for Phil Kessel throughout his career, other than the time he was really sheltered on a third line alongside Carl Hagelin in, in Pittsburgh. I think that was a perfect use of his talents. But 
how do we get into a discussion about those players? Because they're excellent puck movers. Phil Kessel's an excellent offensive player, but when he's on the ice, it's basically a net negative at this point in his career. Yeah, like I think there has to be ways. So we have expected goals for and against, and they'll balance each other out. So obviously if you're gifted offensively, but you're so bad defensively that you're hurting your team, that's a bit of a problem. And um, that also needs to be, Wade, but then you think of a player who's sort of kind of one-dimensional. So um, Patrick Laine, for example. We we know what his dimension is. That guy can score with the best of them. But You can score from the blue line, unscreened. On a wrist shot. <laughs> and it just it's unbelievable what he can do. He like single-handedly can drag the Jets' power play to the top of the league just because... You drop him onto any team, and I think it's a top-five power play in the league just because of the space. Well, you look at Ovechkin, too. Yep. I mean, Nick Backstrom, we, I think we tend to underrate a little bit of what he does, but if you basically can score from the top of the left circle really at efficiently... Will. <laughs> yeah, then all of a sudden, teams have to take away that space, and it leaves someone like Mark Shifley wide open in the slot. Or you essentially play a four-on-three... And Nick Backstrom is one of the best in the league at taking advantage of a four on three. So as long as you have some skill to go along with an elite shooter, an elite shooter is going to give you a top five power play in the league. That's why Ovechkin and Lane have so much value on the power play. But an even strength, it's funny, you look at Lane and you go, ew, <laughs> he's just getting outshot, outchanced. I mean, even though he has the scoring ability. If you watch him play in the defensive zone... There, so I tend to look at different habits because, well, what else am I going to do? I don't know. Um, this guy has his stick in the air in the defensive zone. It's not in a passing lane. It's basically resting on his hips for the majority of the time. And when it is on the ice, it's with one hand and it's so relaxed that if you actually pass the puck at the stick, it would probably knock it out of his hands. So It's that James Van Riemsdyk defense. It's not good, but he's <laughs> so special special offensively that you can't ignore it right but he's not a play driver no he's not he benefits from playing with guys like Mark Shifley because Mark Shifley is an unbelievable transition player but he's not necessarily the best in the offensive zone in terms of shot contributions but when and if he plays with a guy like Line he doesn't need to be that because it's transport the puck to the offensive zone pass it to Patrick Line face off at center ice like So Mark Shifley is another interesting one. I'm glad you brought him up because, again, I feel like the players who are a bit more debatable and controversial when it comes to the eye test and the numbers, they're the players that are my favorite to discuss because there's so much we can get into. Mark Shifley, you watch him play, you see the skills. You see, uh, how tall is he? Is he 6'2"? He's, he's a bigger, stronger center who can carry the puck, who can make passes, who can create offense. He's strong defensively, very solid 200-foot player that you watch play. But then you see his on-ice numbers, and if you go to a place that adjusts for context, like, say, EvolvingHockey.com, I'm on there right now, his shot metrics have never been that positive. In fact, he's been closer to break-even over the last couple of years than anything. Does that have to do with some Paul Maurice coaching and the fact that Winnipeg's always drastically underperformed their talent when it comes to their shot differentials? I think there's an argument to be made there, and I've never understood why Paul Maurice... Like has maintained a job in Winnipeg for so long when their team's getting outshot at 5-on-5. Five five. This year it makes sense because they don't have any defensemen not named Josh Morrissey or 18-year-old Vinny Hinola. But, but why is Mark Shifley not driving play 
at least from a shot differential standpoint, when we can see the elite talent that he has on the ice when he has the puck on his So side. I think Winnipeg, they their transition is very good, right? And that's evident in Shifley's numbers. But I think Winnipeg, because they are a bigger team, like when you think about it, Blake Wheeler, massive humanity. They had Dustin Bufflin, might still have him, massive humanity. Jacob Truva, another big one. Um, obviously, he's on the back end. Patrick Laine, six foot four, massive humanity. Um, Plays like he is five eight. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> ideal. Um, but when you look at that, when Winnipeg gets into the offensive zone, they cycle the puck and they wait to create opportunities. So a lot of the time that they're in the offensive zone, they're not necessarily getting the most high quality shots because they're playing that lean on you type of St. Louis almost offense where it's like let's just cycle the puck and we'll wait for them to get tired and make a mistake and then we'll throw it out there and we'll generate our one scoring chance in 27 seconds or whatever it is right but it's more of a a heavy shift as some would call it where you're out there and you're grinding on the other team they don't like playing against you it's a very heavy forechecking style play which would only show up in some non-public numbers unfortunately because the numbers behind the scenes for a team like Winnipeg are very good. And that's because it... Is that them creating cross-ice passes and doing more with their shot quality offensively? Yes. Or are you just saying that they have the puck more often? Kind of like a possession team in soccer who likes to hold on to the ball. And even though at the end of the day, the shot differential might not be that great, they had the ball so more often. So think about it team. from a... And I'm only making this comparison because it's a possession comparison because Winnipeg is a possession team. Um, Barcelona, when they play the tiki-taka... And even to a degree um, in the height of Spain's um, days, kind of 2010. A lot of people won't know what that means, though. Okay. So Tiki Talk is basically just short passing, making sure that you always have the ball. And when you don't have the ball, you are fighting like hard to get it back. Yeah, so Tiki Taka is kind of the soccer version of the cycle, except you can do it all the way around the field. And you're basically playing in a triangle the whole time. And um, obviously it helps when you have a guy like Messi who can just do whatever he wants out there and it's, it's fine. But when you talk about the cycle, that's the whole possess the puck. Um, and you wait. And by the time you've possessed the puck long enough, eventually there's going to be a mental mistake. And then that's when you capitalize with some of the mo- insane skill that they have with line A and Kyle Connor, um, Mark Shifley, Blake Wheeler types. I just wonder why that doesn't show up in the numbers, because you look at a team like, let's say, Vegas, who plays, I would argue, a very similar tiki-taka style. When you look at the way that they break out the puck, they're activating the defense, uh, everyone's making these short little passes. On defense, they play the swarm, which is very similar to to pressing in soccer, which is what Barcelona does. They're just aggressively attacking, getting those forwards up there and and pressuring the puck carrier, getting the defensemen in situations where they can take away passes, and then you can quickly attack off of turnovers. When I think of the Marsha, so Riley Smith, uh, William Carlson line, especially that first year they played together, that was their bread and butter. It was just pressing like crazy and then wreaking havoc off of turnovers. And Vegas's shot metrics, especially over the last year or two, have been excellent, whereas Winnipeg's haven't been. What's the difference in how those two teams are playing? And maybe at the top end, their star players. What's the difference between a Mark Shifley and a Mark Stone? I think is a really good uh, comparable. Yeah, like I well, I think Stone's better defensively. That guy probably should have won the Selkie last year. It's basically him and Miko Koivu. Arguably the heart. 
Uh, yeah, arguably <laughs> the heart. Um, I think the honestly one of the only reasons he wasn't in contention is because he was traded midway through the year. That's. Yeah, his games in Ottawa don't count because they couldn't possibly have meaning. It's the the Connor McDavid it's argument. So, I hate that. One. Like, oh god, we're I, not I, even I going down that it, road. I don't agree with it, but I understand. So, it. I think that's as far as I'll I go. think. Yeah, Mark Stone's better defensively. He's not nearly as good of a skater as Mark Shifley is. Um, yeah, Mark Stone can't really skate for an elite hockey player. It's weird. But his clearly not the most important talent in the world. If someone like Mark Stone and Ryan O'Reilly who can't skate are still elite two way players. Yeah, I think for that it comes more down to. They're consistently in the right positions. Their sticks are always in the right spots. Um, they're actually very strong on their sticks, so they rarely lose the puck, um, and they always win the puck. They just have less skill than Pavel Datsuk did, but Pavel Datsuk was arguably the best at takeaways. Like some of the, th- he was arguably the best two-way forward in the last twenty years. Maybe. Oh my god, yeah, I loved watching him. Um, that's a play driver, by the way, Pavel Datsuk. Um, but I think. That's probably your biggest difference there um, is the fact that Stone is better defensively. So the puck just isn't in Vegas' zone as often. And Winnipeg doesn't play the Swarm, which, I mean, I could see why because they don't have a ton of players that I think could play it as well as um, Vegas does. And by that, you mean they're not as strong without the puck and puck pursuit and takeaways and stuff like that? Yes, exactly. I still think that all teams should just play aggressively. And I know that uh, Pep Guardiola, who was the coach at uh, Barcelona back in the day. used to coach uh, Bayern Munich. Yeah. And uh, is he with Man City now? He is is with Man City. That's what I thought. I can't see I'm up and up on my soccer right now. I'm not too bad. Um, He had this great quote, and he said that your goal when you have the ball is to make... Your goal when the other team has possession is to make the field as small as possible. You know, just take away every passing lane, double team, and just see if you can get the ball back. And then your goal when you have the ball is to make the field as big as possible. You know, stretch it horizontally, stretch it vertically, force your op- the opponents to cover as much space as possible. And I, I've always taken that to how I evaluate other sports. I find that the best defensive players in hockey are the ones that are the best at taking away space. And the best players offensively are the best players at creating space, whether it's with skating ability and skill, whether it's with vision and passing ability. Those are the best players typically. And I just, I never understood why teams are so passive on the forecheck, for example, when I think that an aggressive forecheck that consistently applies pressure to the opposition and activating your D on the breakouts is the best way to take advantage of a smaller ice surface. You want to maximize the space you have with the puck and minimize the space that the opposition has without it. But I don't know. It's uh, it's a frustrating component of watching the Leafs over the last few years, a frustrating component of watching really talented teams not take advantage of what I think is a really good skill set. Why don't you just play more aggressively in 2019? Yeah, I think that you're seeing more cross-board tactics used. I know for me, like, the three sort of football coaches that I really watch and I like their tactics, um, one's retired, but Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, and Hugh Pinkus, um, who coached Bayern in their year when they won, like, seven trophies or something ridiculous like that. Um I like how they play. They all kind of have that similar mindset. Um, Now, obviously, all three of those teams have a level of star that you just don't get in the NHL because there's parity. All all three of those teams are at the top end of the payroll, and they spend nearly double what some other teams in the league do, which, I mean, you, you don't see in the NHL. But the fact that 
they use the tactics, things like spreading the field or um, how they defend in terms of the their structure and their shape. Um, so sometimes it's defending in the diamond, sometimes it's defending in a triangle. Um, it's when to step in, when not to step in, when to actually apply, who is applying the pressure. Um, I'd like to see some of that come into hockey because I think that that would actually show you a better image of the play drivers because once they stepped in and likely turned the puck over, you'd be able to see, okay, how quickly can they transfer from offense, uh, from defense to offense. The counterattack, the transition play, the let's go kind of aspect. Right. I love counterattacking. Like, I think that um, that's one of the best ways you can score because you see it in soccer all the time. Um, when you are on the counter, you catch the team playing out of their shape, and that's where mistakes get made. I mean, I mean, you see it in hockey, too. After a turnover, Vegas hockey is some of my favorite to watch. The number of three-on-twos they're able to generate, whether it's off a neutral zone turnover or even an offensive zone turnover, someone's out of position. And if you're acting fast enough and you make the right read and you make a quick pass, you can create a really high-danger scoring chance, whether it's you know a cross-ice pass to uh, getting a goalie out of position or whether it's just a quick two-on-one, a quick three-on-two. Sometimes a defenseman jumps up in a play and it's a quick four-on-three. But if you act quickly off of a turnover, that's when teams find the best way to apply pressure is higher up the ice. If you apply pressure on the forecheck, you win a puck battle, boom, it's a quick three on two if you're fast enough to take advantage of it. Yeah, and does that... Do you think that you'd be more successful in doing that if you had players who drive play? So, like Matt Barzell, for example, um, a William Nylander, right? Do you think that those players probably take more advantage? The guys who are good in transition, do they take more advantage of the turnovers or could it be a guy who's more of a shooter like a David Poster? honestly I think players in the league are so good these days it doesn't necessarily need to be a hyper elite player even though that would improve your chances of scoring but even if it's a second or third line if it's a top nine NHL player who's in a three on two these days that should give you a high danger scoring chance or a two on one if you have an NHL player playing in your top nine who can't take advantage of a, a two on one they probably shouldn't be playing in your top nine, realistically. So I'm of the opinion that you want speed and skill all throughout your lineup. Obviously, you want to have some players who can win puck battles and play some defense. But if that player also can't take advantage of a prime scoring opportunity, I'm of the opinion that maybe they shouldn't be given so many minutes in the first place because the best players these days can do both. And if you can only do one of those things, whether it's you know win puck battles and provide a defensive element or provide some offense... I'm not a big fan of those teams. Then I then I find that you're either you know one dimensional defensively or one dimensional offensively. Whereas the best players tend to have multiple components to their game. So I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying in that you want to have your best player on the ice to take advantage of a massive turnover when it happens. But if your team identity is taking away space and capitalizing on turnovers then you don't necessarily need to be a hyper-dangerous player to create dangerous opportunities. Watching someone like Brendan Leipzig play in Washington, he's so fun to watch. He's on their third line, and when the other team turns the puck over, he's really good at skating that puck up the ice and taking advantage of that open ice. So maybe you don't need to have elite players on you know all throughout your lineup. You just need to have some speed, some skill, and some talent all playing into that system, which is force turnovers and wreak havoc in transition. So... Now that we've talked about kind of driving play, I know you are dying to talk about Kevin Fiala because oh boy. we've 
he's come up on the podcast before. He was a healthy scratch um, last I'm week. I'm working on an article about him right and now. And I know you love watching this player. Um, I've loved him since the World Juniors. I don't think he's quite hit his potential. But just... That's an understatement. Yeah. Talk to me about <laughs> Kevin Fiala because, like, to be quite honest, I think he has potential to be as good as Nigo Hishir in terms of just skill. I think, obviously, Nico is the better hockey player. I mean, his numbers would indicate so, and so would his contract. Um, but what are you seeing with Fiala? Because I know you say he can drive play, so what do you see in him that leads you to believe that he shouldn't be a healthy scratch and he is a play driver for Minnesota? I think those two things can be mutually exclusive. I mean, I completely understand the healthy scratch and watching him play, frankly, I, I probably would have done the same thing just to, as a kind of kick in the ass to the player because he's so ridiculously talented with the puck on his stick, but he's not doing some of these other things that we talk about that lead to driving play. You know, he's that exceptional transitional player. When he has the puck, his speed and his skill... He, he was thought of in a similar light to William Nylander and Nikolai Ehlers when he was drafted. And I thought that he was going to have a similar career trajectory, you know, be that 60-point winger who can play in the top six. First line, yeah, maybe on a cup contender. Second line is more ideal. But he's, you know, very efficient transition player. Uh, at the end of my article, I, I think I'm going to say that the goal for him here, I think, is Jonathan Drouin, realistically, because he's never going to be that elite first-line winger that you probably expected him to be. But can he be someone who, in secondary matchups, is just a freak in transition, gets that puck into the offensive zone, can make a pass, or can make a play off the rush that helps generate offense? I think that's what I see in him. But when you're not doing those other things, when you're not back-checking, when you're not going in for puck battles, when you're doing these little flybys in, in puck battles where you get in there a little bit with your stick, but your body is a solid five feet out of the way, oh, then I don't. Yeah. It, it, dri it drives me nuts. And as a Leafs fan, you see Austin Matthews do this all the time, and I'm thinking, dude, you're 6'3", 220, get in there. And I, I see it with Kevin Fiala, and this is what frustrates me. If you're ridiculously talented, you can get away with it like a Patrick Lani, for example. But Kevin Fiala might not be talented enough to get away with it. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure if he's on that first-line skill level with a lot of other players. I think it might be more like second-line skill level. So he needs to do other things to drive play. And if you looked at his numbers last year or the year before, his quote-unquote play-driving numbers, you know, shot differential, scoring chance differential, expected goals, they weren't positive. And this is a player who has the talent where the, the, the shot differentials should be very positive when he's on the ice. So what's missing in that regard? This is, the, this is where we get into the conversation of, you know, transition ability, speed and skill is great. But if you don't combine it with a few other aspects, you run the risk of becoming a, a liability at 5-on-5. Five five. Someone like Phil Kessel we talked about earlier, and you don't want Kevin Fiala to fall into those habits because he has the talent to be so much better than that. And I think that's where the frustration comes with him, both from fan bases, from coaching staffs, really anyone who's watched him over the last few years. You watch him and you see flashes of it and you go, this player should be a star, but he's not. Why is that? And it's funny, I feel like we could have that conversation with a few different players. Uh, I, I ranted for a bit there just because Kevin Fiala is a player that I've been fascinated with over the last few years. I feel like he's a guy who should be much better than he currently is, but I still haven't given up on him entirely because I'm such a fan of his talent. What do you do with players like that? Because they drive me nuts. So it's it's interesting because <laughs> his possession exits and entries, like 
They're godly. They are They're like insane. 95th percentile. <laughs> 90, 97, 93, and 96th percentiles. Like, yeah, he's a freak with the absurd. puck on his That's absurd. His shot contributions, so when the 92. Shot assists, 80th percentile. Shots per 60, 92nd percentile. Can I say, I'd like to see him make more passes once he gains the zone. That's something I would like to see him do a yeah. bit more often. I, I don't think he's a Casperi Kapanen or a Michael Grabner who just is a lone wolf shot off the rush guy. But with his talent, I'd like to see him change his speeds a bit more mm-hmm. and make that cross-ice pass You know that, that a Patrick Kane, a Mitch Marner, a Matt Barzell tends to make. I don't think he's ever going to get there, but I, this guy drives me nuts because I love him and he won't let me. So with, with a player <laughs> like this where you can clearly see there's talent there, Right, you've got all the signs of an offensive, a transition, just a dynamo. Right, that's this is someone where you could put a player like Patrick Line with them and be like, just get the puck to the offensive zone and pass it to that guy, and we'll get a shot on net type of situation. We'll but get I'd a score. Never chance. let those two on the ice at the same time because I wouldn't trust them without exactly. The and so this is where you have to look at how Kevin Fiala is without the puck because it's very clear that with the puck he's an unbelievable hockey player but without the puck I'd be willing to bet his defensive zone stick habits are terrible we've already discussed that he doesn't go into battles which is a big problem because if you don't battle for the puck you will not have the puck so and that's just an effort thing honestly that's and that is an effort thing so it's interesting because the team that I'm with at York we have a player who is shorter than I am and I'm five foot four um, and he has the most battles won on our team this year. Oh, Mike Babcock probably would love talking about that guy's ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is the you don't have to be a big player to win a battle. You have to go in there. You have to have good leverage on your stick. Your stick needs to be in the right spots. You need to attack the proper side of the body so that you can win the battle and gain leverage. And once you do that... Then you go. If Kevin Fiala used his body just to leverage and manipulate the player he was battling against to get the puck, he'd be probably a second line an player. Probably maybe even an all-star. Because at that point he'd just have the puck more. So I think with players like that, you need to look at how they are um without the puck, because it's clear that when they have the puck, it's not an issue. Well, this is funny because Patrick Kane, you could make a similar argument, but he's so freakishly talented with the puck that he's gotten away with those habits throughout his career, but he probably should be a better player in the 200 feet of the ice. He just never really addressed those habits. I feel like with players like Patrick Kane sort of get a pass because they're that good, right? Yeah. Like and if you're not that good, you can't get away with those habits. It doesn't matter. And the same thing with Ovechkin. It doesn't matter how good he is in the defensive zone because he's going yeah, he to score you 50 like goals he has a those, year. <laughs> the, what do you call it? The unplugged controller <laughs> yeah. meme that went around. Uh, but when you're scoring 50 goals, the pros are going to weigh the cons. Still, I'd like to see my captain and franchise player backcheck. Uh, call me old-fashioned. But... Well, yeah, put a <laughs> modicum of effort in, please. But, I mean, if... Patrick Kane isn't the first guy into the battle. Like, am I going to be mad if he's not F1 on the four check? You know, I might want him to be, but realistically, if you're going to score me 100 points a season, I'm probably not going to say a whole lot. Now, when you're in the second or third line and you're, you don't have the talent to be that game changer, you're not even, ar- arguably in Kevin Fiala's situation, a guy who needs to be on power play one. 
because he's never had the production there throughout his career. And this is something I think we saw with Jonathan Drouin in Tampa. They got really frustrated with his habits because they knew he had excellent talent, but he wasn't taking advantage of it. In Montreal, I feel like he's starting to be appreciated for the player he is, not necessarily the player he isn't now. And I'm wondering if we might just need to do that with Kevin Fiala and realize, you know what? This player we all wanted you to be, that star first line, 30 goal, 30 assist kind of player, maybe that's just never going to happen. But at some point, I think we need to blame the player for that. Yes. And when you're not putting in the effort to make improvements in your game, that's not on the team for making a bad draft choice. That's not on the development staff for, you know, not taking the right approach with the player. I think that's just a player being lazy. And there are a few players like that in this league. Uh, who are some other ones, Ian? I mean, we could talk historically. There's some Hall of Famers that you could argue. Like, I mean, you talk about like someone like Alexei Kovalev. Oh, my God. Like, that guy never took advantage of what he should have been. But the... One of the most talented players ever. Yeah. Yeah, and that's part of the problem. Like, if you're one of the most talented players ever, why aren't you one of the best players And then ever? you have a guy like Pavel Datsuk, who is arguably the most skilled player in the past generation in terms of ability to handle the puck. But there's also this famous story of him and Henrik Zetterberg doing hurdles the night of a game because they wanted to get ready for the playoffs. And Mike Babcock had to go in and tell them, like, settle the heck down kind of situation. So you have a player who's works that hard. I don't think he has that problem with Austin Matthews and William Nylander. I don't... Zing. <laughs> See, I don't think there's many players like Pavel Datsuk in terms of you mix that level of talent with that work ethic. I think they're very rare, and that's why a player like Pavel Datsuk is so special. Because you have... Guys like McDavid and McKinnon and Crosby, well, maybe leave Crosby out because he works, he's like the most skilled grinder potentially of all time, right? That guy has the biggest ass in the NHL. Like, I don't think it's very close, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't know. Mike Babcock would like a word. <laughs> <laughs> but when you think about it, Crosby's always in there. He's winning battles. He's strong on his stick. He's got good defensive habits. And then we know what he can do in the offensive zone. Like, that's just... Not even up for discussion. Kick a puck up to his skate, make a one-touch pass. You're just thinking, dude, it's not fair. Right, and then... You're in your 30s. Slow down, But then you have a guy like Datsuk who is insanely gifted offensively, but also a multiple Selkie winner. Yep. Right? He's one of those players where you could say definitively he is an unbelievable hockey player in all three zones. I know Crosby talked about when he faced Datsuk and Zetterberg in the playoffs for the first time, he was blown away at how quickly they got on top of you when when they lost the puck. Right. Like, the, the Crosby was skating up the ice, and Datsuk would catch him, strip it from him, and then take it back the other way. And Crosby was like, holy shit, I need to step up my game here a bit if this is the level of play that, that is going to be expected from me. And I think it made him a better hockey player in the long term. You look at what he did last year in the regular season. Oh, it was... Pittsburgh yeah. should not have made the playoffs last year. And have you seen their roster this year? <laughs> Especially when like Malkin gets Crosby like, and his band of merry men. This is an AHL team. This is bad. This is not pretty. <laughs> but when Crosby was on the ice last year, I think he had the most impressive on-off differential in the NHL. Maybe him McDavid. and when Mark Stone. Well, I was going to say when Mark Stone was on Ottawa, it was pretty hilarious. Yes, but... <laughs> that too. I think those three players where you just look at on-ice and off-ice and it's like, is this even a real team? 
Yeah, like when they're off the ice, it's basically an AHL team. But when they're on the ice, they're dominating. And you're thinking, how are you able to do this? But, you know, you, you win every puck battle. When you're McDavid, you're just a video game. I mean, that's He is a, an actual video game. That play... That goal where he... I mean, Justin Braun isn't the defenseman he used to be, but I felt so bad for him on that play because I'm like, dude, that's, that's not even your fault. That's just McDavid. I think Sean Tierney had the best tweet <laughs> It was something along the lines of, I don't know how to defend Connor McDavid, and neither does Justin Braun. It was something to that effect. And I'm like, I don't think anyone actually knows how to effectively defend McDavid because the guy is, other than injuring him, there's no way you can do it. He should have a penalty drawn almost every shift. I was thinking about this when I watched McDavid on the power play because the the best advice that we have on the power play is never let the opposition gain the zone and set up because once they do that, it's game over and there's a lot of research to back that up. That once you're set up in formation, there's very little the opposition can do to, to prevent you from taking a, a quality shot or at least generating some kind of offense. Whereas, you know, defending in the neutral zone trap and defending against the entry, you have a bit of a chance. But Connor McDavid's a free zone entry. You know, with his speed, you have to back up. Otherwise, it's an odd man rush. It's, yeah. So he gains the zone. He circles back, passes the defenseman, and, and like he, he gets his team into the offensive zone, even, like on the power play, easily for free. At five on five, he does it too, and it's just silly watching him get the puck in his own end and just blow by everybody. The other team panics. Everyone skates back into the slot. He'll circle back, pass it to dry saddle into open space, and they'll create a chance off of it. But on the power play, what do you do? Like, McDavid's going to get the entry. He's going to back it up, set it up in formation. And now they've got a McDavid, Dreisaitl, James Neal power play that's that's going to do some damage. Nugent Hopkins pretty good on the power play. So. That's Connor McDavid. McDavid's just not fair. McDavid He's is a player fair. where you... You know they talk about this player drives the bus on this line? Connor McDavid emphatically drives the bus. Drives the entire team. Like, I, I love watching the Oilers for two reasons. One, Connor McDavid. Two, when Connor McDavid gets off the ice, it's like I'm watching a different sport, and it's kind of like the contrast is kind of hilarious. So what about players who benefit from playing with these elite play drivers? So a guy like, obviously, James Neal benefits from playing with McDavid. Miko Rantanen definitely could say benefits from playing with Nathan McKinnon. Um, then you have a guy like Tyler Sagan, who... Some people probably think he is a play driver, but his numbers, like, they're not that great. Like, what are we thinking with these three players, let's say? All right, I want to touch on Rantanen because that's a fascinating one. Because Rantanen, when he gets the puck in open space, very few players in the league are as good offensively as Rantanen. You know, on the power play, elite shot. Um, on a three-on-two, elite vision and skill and ability to make a play in open space. But transitionally, he's not that great. Defensively, he's not that great. If Nathan McKinnon weren't on that team, I'm not sure what Miko Rantanen would be as a player. I'm not sure if he'd be like a 60-70 point guy who plays in your top six and first unit power play, but isn't really a driver. But when you play him with McKinnon, he's this guaranteed 90 point player who's going to help you have an elite power play and an elite first line. And it's like, man, I don't know how much that's worth on the open market, but it's got to be worth something because goals are good and Rantanen helps you get there. So... I, it's tricky because you need elite play drivers to get you into the offensive zone with consistency. But if you have the players who can do that for you, then your elite offensive ability can really help take advantage of that. Heck, let's talk about Austin Matthews and William Nylander. Austin Matthews, when he plays without Nylander, has never really driven play throughout his career. You know, he's more of a break-even player. But when he has Nylander to help skate that puck into the offensive zone and help, you know, make sure that you're on offense, 
Matthews is a ridiculous special offensive talent, and that's worth something. I think you so. can also make the argument for, we talk about pairs, I looked at Marshawn's numbers and Bergeron's numbers, and they're the complete opposite of each other. So, Well, they they play together so often that it's really hard to suss out you know, <laughs> yeah. who's making the impact there. This is one of those ones where even a model won't be able they're to do it. They're both very good. That's it. If you're, no, but if you're playing at, on the ice at the same time all the time, who's the driver? It's impossible to know because we don't have any sample of you playing without the dude. And this is an issue in regression models. This is an issue with the eye test. It's just like, well, who's driving the line? Until we get a decent sample of you on a different line, we're not really going to know. Exactly. And I think that when you have the best combo, obviously you want to have a play driver. But not every team is going to have Taylor Hall, Nathan McKinnon, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby. So then your best option is to have a player who's elite in transition with a player who's got an elite shot contribution sort of or just whether he's a great passer or a great shooter someone who can do something with the space you create in the offense so when you bring up Nylander Matthews obviously Nylander elite in transition Marner elite in transition and then you have Austin Matthews who maybe has the best wrist shot in the NHL like it's it's elite so his shot contributions are high and you need a guy like Nylander or a guy like Marner to get the puck to guys like Matthews and Tavares who can put the puck in the back of the net better than most, right? So I think if you don't have a player who can do it all, like the four that we've mentioned, you need to have a player who can match with someone. So think of like Elias Pettersson and Brock Besser. Brock Besser is a great example of someone who can't do much without the puck, but you get him into a bit of open space in the offensive zone, like that puck's in the back of the net. Exactly. Patrick Lane is another great example. I feel like Brock Besser is a poor man's Lane, but they're very similar in that their only real ability at the NHL level is their ridiculous shot. And guess what? If, you, if you're going to have one skill at the NHL level that's elite, like you choose that one. Probably. Oh, the, <laughs> better be able to score goals. Because you see with Michael Grabner... The objective of the game is to outscore the opposition, you know, whether it's 2-1 or 4-3. I'll always make that argument that, you know, someone like Brandon Peary, I get that he frustrates you in a bunch of different ways, but when he's on the ice, he puts the puck in the net, and that has value. Play this guy. So then you like, have... That's, that's another argument for another day. We'll talk about Brandon Peary later when on. When you maybe. have a player, well, let's say... have a Brandon Peary podcast. Um, <laughs> Michael Grabner, who skates like the wind... But just cement hands. Same with Kasperi Kapanen. Just cement hands. I'd argue that Kapanen has some better hands than Grabner's. The vision is more the issue. Well, okay. But I'm saying you have that skill, and we talk about skating being important. But then you have a guy, or guys, uh, Line A, um, Ovechkin. Like, they are... Their bread and butter is scoring, and they're getting paid more money because when push comes to shove, Ovechkin's always going to be able to shoot the puck like that. Like, that's just not going to disappear. But this leads to another argument of, are we overpaying for offense? Because if you can consistently get your team into the offensive zone instead of the defensive zone, you're not giving up goals, and you're probably scoring them. It's the Mark Stone argument for why he deserved to win the heart last year, just because you're always on offense when he's on the ice. Yeah, I think that... Mark Stone is one of the NHL's best wingers, probably him, Nikita Kucherov, and... Mm, You're pronouncing it like me now. I appreciate um, it. <laughs> I just... 
with Mark Stone, if you're going to give, like, if he was, let's say he was 25 years old, right? That is a 10, 11 million dollar player, signed, sealed, and delivered. I'd argue he is that today. Yeah, he probably is. Actually, no, he is right now. You're right. But in, will he be in three, four in, years? Yeah, that, I was going to say in five question. or six years, yeah. he won't be. Yeah, that's fair. But I mean, you look at a team like Carolina, for example, they're the perfect example of underpaying players because they're not necessarily paying for goals. They're paying for guys who can drive play like a Tivo Teravain and a Jacob Slave and a Brett Pesci. Um, even Dougie Hamilton throughout his career has always been this guy who's like much maligned, never given enough ice time relative to what he's doing. But when he's on the ice, man, he's dominating. Now he's getting the minutes this year. He's getting some power play time. and He's putting the puck in the net. Yeah. Dougie for the Norris. All right. I'd love to see that happen, even though 200 hockey men will never let it happen. But... And then you, you haven't even mentioned their arguably best player in Ajo. Well, yeah, but Ajo's kind of that example of, well, this guy can actually break down a defense and do some special things to get you goals. But if you fill out your roster with a bunch of Nita Riders, a bunch of Teravainans, a bunch of Peshies and Slavens, and, you know, the, the second, third line and pairing version of those players, you're going to be in the offensive zone a lot more often than you're not. And then you could use the star talent to score some goals. And, you know, that's probably part of the reason their power play hasn't been as good as it probably should be. And the goal is that Aho takes that next step on the power play, that Svechnikov can become a trigger man on the power play. So I hear what you're saying. You know, at the end of the day, you do need to score goals. But I still think that we're really undervaluing just flat-out coursey, flat-out your ability to be on offense more than defense because it's a repeatable skill, and some guys are much better at it than So others. speaking of being on offense more than on being defense, um, our only mailbag question is John Carlson on Monday night is the NHL's leading scorer in points. How should this impact the Norris? Because if you are leading the league in points after 10 games in a league where Connor McDavid exists as a defenseman, you have a lot of points. John Carlson's a tricky one for me because I didn't like the contract when it was signed. I thought it would be an overpay. Mm -hmm. And he was always someone who had been playing with Carl Alsner or Brooks Orpuk, and that was seriously hurting his numbers. Yeah, they're not driving play at all. Yeah, yeah, and like, and Matt Niskanen got to play with Dmitry Orlov, who is just perfect. He he does everything you'd like. He's like he's like a perfect example of what I was talking about of a guy who doesn't necessarily score a lot offensively, but he's just doing all the little things. His gap control and transition, his puck moving ability. He's kind of a, a souped up version of what I hope Travis Dermott can become. You know, he's just a perfect top pairing left-handed defenseman, the kind of guy that you'd want to have on your team. Carlson finally got to play with him, and all of a sudden his numbers look a lot better. On the power play, though. What's the reason that John Carlson has all that open space? It's Alex Ovechkin. And, and this is kind Kuznetsov of the, the arc- and yeah. Backstrom. Yeah, and Carlson's ability to beat a goalie from distance is very real. He has an excellent shot, and he's a perfect fit on that power play. And with Ovechkin and Carlson, Backstrom, Kuznetsov, and then you could put me in the middle of that power play, and it would still be solid. <laughs> like that's it's hard when we're evaluating these players, you know, oh, TJ Oshie, 30 goal season, like that must be really valuable. I don't think they should have paid Oshie because I think a lot of people can fill the role that he filled for them because Ovechkin gives people plenty of space to work with. John Carlson, I think is a very strong player. I think points overvalue him and I think he's in the perfect situation for himself right now, but I still don't think he's a top 10 defensemen in this league and I'd like to see the Norris actually go to players who are top 10 defensemen in this league but we just give it to the player who has the most points at the end of the day anyways like Brent Burns for example fantastic fantastic offensive defenseman I don't want him on the ice in the last two minutes of a tie game 
that like that should tell you something about how, how valuable a player is because you can't trust them against the best players in this league. I don't know, John Carlson. You can to an extent, but is he as good as? I don't know who's who's like the ideal top five defenseman in the league right now that you would want on the ice last two minutes of a close playoff. Jacob Slavin, probably. Yep, Jacob Slavin comes to mind for me. Uh, I mean, prime Drew Doughty, uh, probably. Yeah, he's, prime he's, Drew Doughty. Yeah, he's not in, he's not in his prime anymore. Hampus Lindholm, if he can get back to doing what he did um, before Randy Carlisle ruined the Ducks, I'd, I'd like to see. Someone like that start to get rewarded for their strong two-way play, but we're just going to give it to the best offensive defenseman at the end of the day anyway, so why are we even talking about this? I don't know. I- I'd like to see defensemen rewarded for the Being a excellent things they do. Yeah, well, I don't. here's the thing. You don't even need to be that great at defense to be an excellent defenseman if you're consistently getting the puck up the ice and spending time on offense. I mean, Eric Carlson's the king of that. But who cares about points? They care a little. Like, they matter a little bit. But if you're not driving play to a top five degree at your position, I don't think you should be in the Norris discussion. Agreed. There's my hot take of the day. It's not even a hot take. It's just this is how it should be. And we haven't uh, come to a point where people can see that. And it's the same argument for the Vesna, where goals against average is still counted for something, even though that's a team stat and not an individual stat. How about wins? That's oh all I care God. about, baby. J- just win, baby. Yeah. <laughs> just. But this is why I'd like to see... I-, I was so happy Mark Giordano finally won the Norris. I'm like, okay, this is who needs to win the Norris. Yes! But he, but he only won it when he- his shooting percentage went up like crazy and he got a bunch of points. And I'm thinking, okay, you made the right call for the wrong reason, but at least you made the right call for once. Exactly. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I don't think either of us think that John Carlson will lead the NHL in points for very much longer. Um, but Dougie Hamilton might. Oh, baby. Yes, if Dougie <laughs> Hamilton gets 100 points, that would be quite something. 50 goals, 50 assists. Book it. I honestly think I would... L- what would happen if a defenseman g- got near 100 points in today's day? Like it's. Um, they probably come second in Norris voting to Drew Doughty. <laughs> For the Lifetime Achievement Award. Sorry, that year that Eric Carlson just had a stupid year for Ottawa, where I think he led the... Didn't he lead the league in assists? Yes, he did. Yeah, and he and then Drew Doughty won the Norris. I'm like, okay, people. Here's the thing. Points, I just argued, weren't that impressive, but when Carlson combines it with the best on-off numbers in the league, and he's leading the league and passes up the ice like, out of his defensive zone, and... What, he spends his entire shift in the offensive zone after playing dominant hockey. I'm like, okay, this guy was clearly the best defenseman in the NHL, and you gave the award to Doughty, who's also great, but was number two or number three in the league by a pretty considerable margin. I don't know. The Norris voting drives me crazy. The Vesna voting drives me crazy. Well, GM voting vote when for we the get Vesna. into that that Connor McDavid. When we get into that Connor McDavid discussion, that's that's frustrating. Oh. But I don't know. I just feel like we're not recognizing the best 200 foot defenseman in this league anymore. Especially when you see someone like Morgan Riley get legitimate Norris buzz. I'm thinking, okay, I love Morgan Riley. In fact, I want him to finish in the top five just as a Leafs fan. But if I'm being objective, he's not a top five defenseman in the exactly. league. And I don't want to see players like that rewarded for bad defense. Alrighty. Well, that Ian has done a ton of ranting today. So This is rant central. <laughs> People are going to think I hate Morgan Riley now. I think he's a great player. Yeah, I'm personally offended by that. 
I don't know. <laughs> play defense. Play a little bit of defense. It's, you know uh, Drew Doughty's rant about Brent Burns last yes. year? Yes. It's funny that it came at a time when Drew Doughty was having a terrible Defensively, season. Defensively, <laughs> I know. He was not very good last year. But that rant is basically exactly my position here. It's that, look, points are great and they're fun, but if your coach doesn't trust you out there against top competition and you're not driving play to an elite degree because you're giving up so much defensively, maybe you're not as good as your points indicate. And I think you could say that about both forwards and defensemen. Agreed. Alrighty. Well, that I think kind of wraps up this week of the Staff and Graph podcast. On play driving ability. It's a, it's an interesting topic. I've always I've always liked talking about it. It's just hard breaking the, the coursey barrier, you know, yeah. of and I, that's why I try not to use like analytics terms like Corsi when I'm talking about hockey. Just, I just call it shot actually... attempts. That's what it is. Yeah, pucks on net, baby. <sighs> pucks in deep. Pucks on net. <laughs> pucks in. Yeah, it, it matters. If you have the puck in the offensive zone a lot, and you're generating shots towards the net a lot, it means that you did a bunch of good things to get yourself in that position. And we can talk more about those aspects as opposed to just a raw Corsi number and then end the discussion there. No, let's use it as a starting point, not an ending point. All right, wise words from Ian Tulock, or Ian Graff, as Jeff O'Neill calls him. Frederick Gauthier, most improved player on the Leafs. Uh, not wrong. (laughs) Hey, hey, O-Dog's words, not mine. All righty, we will (laughs) chat next week. Looking forward to it. Do we have a topic in mind yet? Um, we'll think about it. We'll figure something out, but everyone... Wish Rachel luck because she'll still be knee deep in exams next week. So yeah, I have two this week we're, we're, and four or three next week. Try your best not to like get sick or break a bone or something, but knowing you, both will happen. Okay, so. You know what? That kind of negativity is not needed on this podcast. I believe in you, Rachel. You got this. Now, just don't break a bone. Honestly, <laughs> like, no guarantees. <laughs> All right. Par- advice that your parents have probably given you all throughout your life. And you never listen. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> Alrighty. All right. Hang in there, Rachel. We'll talk next week. Sounds good. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graf podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>